0: Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the first episode of the summer, I suppose the first episode of the 2020 season. It's been a while. I couldn't I couldn't speak. Couldn't talk for a little bit. A couple weeks ago sliced my lip. Had this huge cut on my lip. It got infected and when I attempted to talk, it was no bueno. I actually didn't even speak for a couple of days. So it's good to be back talking into a microphone very much the same way I was almost a year ago last summer the end of last summer when we kicked off the Thinking Basketball podcast with the top 10 scores in NBA history today an homage a follow-up to that long overdue many of you have been asking for it today we are going to discuss the top 10 playmakers in NBA history so last year we did the top 10 scores This year, today, right now, we will do the top 10 playmakers. But before we get into the top 10 playmakers, a huge thanks to all of you who have helped grow this podcast over the last year and and all things thinking basketball, I suppose, the YouTube channel as well. Before we get into the playmakers, if you are a regular listener of this show, you enjoy it, you enjoy this episode. Please go ahead and try to leave a review on the iTunes store, wherever you listen. Uh, wherever you listen, if you leave a review and rate and comment and do all that stuff, it helps. It helps uh, push the podcast up in those, those algorithms, the maths, that we'll talk a little bit about today. So a uh, huge thanks to all of you. And if you haven't done so and you have a, a minute, please go ahead and do that. That helps out. Okay. With that out of the way, let's get right to it. Top 10 Playmakers in NBA history. Ooh. This one is is really fun and exciting for me. When it comes to great scorers, we all kind of have our own slightly different but fairly similar intuition of what that means. For some people it's the ability to score all over the court, for some people it's just to get buckets, and at the end of the day the approach that I used last year was heavily centered around points and the efficiency of scoring those points. Uh, With some context and added information uh, based on a player's teammates. That's how we did it. We pulled out a regression model that uh, looked at all things in NBA history. Well, I shouldn't say all things in NBA history. It was only trained on modern data, but it allowed us to reach back in NBA history and balance the idea of volume and scoring in a particular context. I think that was the big advantage of that approach because. Again, whether we think about style or the ability to get to the rim and the mid-range and hit difficult shots and stretch to the three-point line, we all kind of have our own idea of what the best score is, but it can be very challenging to put that into context based on a team. Are you high volume, low efficiency? Are you medium volume, medium efficiency? And then even once you put that into context, it's still difficult to understand how to weigh it. Uh, is extra volume while bleeding a little efficiency? Is that better or worse than tinkering those knobs in a different configuration? So similar issue with playmaking, but what excites me about playmaking is I've reached out a couple times in the last year to discuss it with many of you on Twitter. Uh, As always, just fantastically thoughtful and wonderful feedback from so many of you out there and the thing that is very clear is how our representations our concepts of playmaking aren't quite as homogeneous as the way we think about scoring and that's that's just a semantics thing really i mean there's there's maybe a little bit more to it but really when we say playmaking some of us think passing i got a lot of passers but when i say passer i mean pass-heavy. The, the person isn't necessarily constantly carving up the defense. They're making great passes. And then some of you were thinking of guys that carve up the defense, but possibly also pass as well. I mean, Steph Curry's name came up. We'll, we'll certainly talk about him in this episode. And so it was just interesting to see a very wide range of ideas or representations of what it actually means in basketball when we talk about playmaking. I'm not going to pretend to have some sort of official definition here today, but I can say the spirit of what I say when I hear or what I what I hear when I read that term playmaking, to me it's about the ability to set up your teammates to score and really to set up your teammates to score in an advantageous way. And so given all of the work I've done on Passing and tracking passing and creating passer rating, and then on shot creation, tracking shots created and creating box creation, those two things sit at the cornerstone. Those are the foundations to me of playmaking and basketball. And from what I can tell, most of you out there, if not all, agree with that. It's just really how do we conceptualize it? And again, much like trying to balance volume scoring and efficiency unscoring. I did not try to do that. I find it to be very difficult. And so instead, what I did was I updated my regression model from last year. I wanted to do this, didn't get to it until the summer and ended up building a model that is uh, very similar to what we had last summer. It's very similar in essence to my box plus minus that I share with Patreon, insiders, it's very similar in principle, but the updates are basically making almost every value that you possibly could relative to the league. In other words, if something doesn't really need to be relative to the league, uh, it isn't. But for, I'm trying to think of one where I didn't even use a value that's relative to the league. Most, Most of the regression is modeled on values relative to the league. So what that means is instead of looking at absolute passer rating, you would look at passer rating relative to the league average in that given season. Instead of looking at absolute shot creation, you would take shot creation relative to the league average in that given season. Same thing for scoring and scoring efficiency. Most of you are familiar with relative true shooting or relative efficiency. This is the same concept where you just look at a player's efficiency relative to the league average. Is he at league average? Is he above? Is he below? And we can do that with basically every piece of information we put into the model. And I wanted to do this to really be fair to different league environments and to really try to Help capture players from the 70s and 60s and even 50s who were creating value, who were differentiating in this manner. So, uh, if you're not familiar with that first episode, it, it is Thinking Basketball Podcast, episode number one. The quick recap is that we are essentially taking a box plus minus model and then pulling out the components of that model that we describe as scoring. So what's scoring? It's uh, scoring volume and efficiency. And there's a couple other components in there that adjust those based on the team environment. Same thing with playmaking. What what would be playmaking stats? Well, playmaking stats are things like shots created and passer rating and maybe turnovers. Um, it's not perfect, because you have to do something like distribute turnovers among scoring attempts and among passing attempts. For this particular model, I just did that by splitting the percentage of a player's load that is responsible, uh, that, that is based on scoring, I should say, and a percentage of a player's load that is based on passing, trying to directly involve himself in a possession with some kind of pass, creating the shot, making the pass, whatever it is. So it's not perfect, but it's not. It does. It's not designed to be perfect. It doesn't need to be perfect. It's just an insight into value based on different components of what the box score is saying. I'll say this about the box score. It has a tremendous amount of offensive information, um, especially today. But even historically, once you get to 1974 and the numbers before 1974. Are estimates that we can produce that are pretty accurate, you have a lot of offensive information. You don't have a lot of defensive information. So I'm comfortable saying that this is a, I would say even very good, I was going to say good, but I would say very good way for us to approximate the value of scoring and the value of playmaking. Okay, so I updated the model a little bit really just for this exercise because I wanted to be fair when talking about how players differentiate on offense with their playmaking and scoring and the, the results were surprising I'll just say that up front the results were very surprising uh, I expected to see more older players by virtue of having a model that says relative to the league how are you differentiating? So today, maybe, you know, setting up teammates for seven or eight shots a game doesn't put you in the upper crust, but in the 1960s, it would. And so if you could do that and, the, and you know, no other players in the league were creating two or three shots a game, didn't that give you a huge leg up? Well, much to my surprise, the answer seemed to be no. Um, or maybe more specifically, I should say, no one really differentiated in the old days to the same degree that they do now based on their playmaking. There are some understandable reasons for this. I would say, so So, just to be clear where we're going, basically no old players made the top 10. I, I'm not even sure I would say any of them were really close, although uh, certainly if you were to extend the list out to 20 or 30, you could start to find room for them but you'll see none of them made my top 10. None of them were in my final cut. And right out of the gate, you know, many people online mentioned old names like Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, Pete Maravich came up. So let's talk about those players first in the context of this list. Playmaking again, and I'm not trying to find the perfect balance I'm letting the model do that but playmaking again to me is really this concept of how you're setting up your teammates to get baskets so if it's just based on passing it can be opportunistic passing you didn't draw a double team or uh, shift the defense to react to your scoring threat You just made an opportunistic pass. A lot of these can be in transition. Sometimes they can be in the half court if you see a backdoor cut or something like that. Um, So you don't necessarily have to manipulate the defense with your, or warp the defense around your scoring threat. On the flip side, you can play make and set up teammates for easier shots with hockey assists or things like that without making great passes. But if the defense responds to you and you warp them in a particular way that opens up a teammate who wouldn't otherwise be open, then either by passing them the ball or starting that chain of events and having teammates move it along to an open shooter or an open player at the rim, then you are playmaking as well. You are creating those opportunities. So to to simplify, it's really about creating opportunities and or finding opportunities Um, in an opportunistic passing way. You can do all of one or all of the other, or you can balance. That's, That's literally what I'm asking the model to do here. And when we go back in time, older players simply didn't have the opportunities to find players with passes like this. The passing lanes weren't there because of the spacing. And they didn't have the opportunities to carve up defenses and drive and kick, drive and lay down, uh, skip pass, reacting to double teams, pull pull players into their gravitational vortex on a pick and roll or whatever we see in the modern game today. They just simply couldn't play like that for a variety of reasons. What were those reasons? I I mean, to me, I would say they're 90 or 95% rule-based, just the way you could dribble, the fact that there was no three-point shot, the lack of spacing and sort of clogged offenses, the traffic that existed in and around the lane, closed up passing angles. All of these things meant it was harder to do the stuff we associate with playmaking uh, in a modern context. The stuff that we see today was much harder to come by in the 1960s. And so as a result of that, even the best playmakers in the league weren't able to differentiate enough to land on the top 10 playmakers list here as it's, as it's set up today. So for perspective, and remember this is a slightly different model than last year, so if you're going to go back and compare to that first podcast, the numbers would be a touch different, but for perspective, the best playmakers ever using this model of relative differentiation, relative to the league, are gaining about 2, 2.5 points, maybe upward near 3 points in one case uh, in this model. So you're saying your playmaking is worth 2 points per 100 or whatever. And you'll have a lot of really good playmakers, as we'll see, be around 1.5 to 2 points per 100. Well, there is no player... In the old days, before I think before the merger, that's how far it extends. You really have to get into the three point era. So there's no player before the three point era who has a playmaking value in this model of 1.5 in any given season. Not one. And, and by the way, I've in the past I've called the scoring version of this model. Scoring value or score val, I think here I'll call this play val, just as an easy shorthand for reference. So no one has a play val over 1.5 before the three-point era comes along, before dribbling rules relax, uh, the three-point shot starts to enhance spacing, all, all of the traveling rules, all of the things that, if you're familiar with my work, you've seen me talk about before, those things really got us to a place where players could be singularly massive offensive engines. Now, who is traditionally the archetype, the original archetype of this quarterback model that we see today? The guy has the ball a lot. He's an extremely skilled scorer, and he also carves you up with passing. It's Oscar Robertson, one of the greatest players of all time. And Oscar Robertson happens to be the player with the highest play valve mark before the three-point era. It's plus 1.4 in 1966. He also had 10 seasons over plus one. So if we were doing a list by era, now again, it's all relative. So so it's already relative to your competition. But I'm saying if we were just chopping the list in the blocks and saying, the best in the 60s, the best in the 70s, the best in the 80s, Oscar would clearly be the best in the 60s. He clearly separated himself. Although, in the postseason, actually never had a value over plus one in this playmaking value metric. Interesting. uh, A drop-off there. Perhaps a tightening of the game. Tightening of competition, even though that's largely accounted for. It's adjusted for opponent in this case. Um, Just something interesting to note as we get to the Modern players in a little bit. Other guys in the past, Jerry West really didn't become a prominent playmaker until the end of his career. He was more of a gunner when he started. He started to develop that passing and playmaking in the mid to late 60s. And really, from my eye, it was the 1968 team where he started to pass more. New coaching came in, spacing was emphasized. Um, That shows up statistically. In estimates of his passer rating and his shot creation in 1969, Wilt Chamberlain came in, the Elgin Baylor was still there. The whole thing didn't really work. It was less than the sum of his parts. And so you really don't get West as a high-level passer or playmaker until the 70s. He was over plus one three times, had one of the best marks in the pre-three-point era with one point, plus 1.33 in 1972. But not enough to make this list. Another big name from the 50s, the original Houdini of the hardwood, Bob Cousy. Also a great passer. Interesting to see responses, by the way, of people who seem to largely think of great playmaking as being able to have flair behind the back passes or whatnot. Pete Maravich is a name that came up constantly. I didn't see as many Jason Williams names, but Jason Williams' name, White Chocolate, came up as well. Maravich, by the way, his best value was plus 0.8 in 1973 and that fell off a cliff in the postseason. The reality with him is he just wasn't super efficient with his decision making and he wasn't, again, as, as was the case with so many players earlier in the league, he wasn't able to just constantly draw double teams and carve up defenses and create shots for teammates. Kuzi's best, best value and came in 1960. It was plus 1.1. He had five straight years over plus one. So if we did this by era again, if we went to the 50s and early 60s, Kuzi was the clear best playmaker in basketball before Oscar Robertson. Uh, another guy who's a great passer of that era, Rick Barry. But Rick Barry, much like Jerry West when he came into the league, he was a massive gunner, huge scoring numbers, at the end of the 1960s. And it wasn't until he came back from the ABA in the 70s that he had really developed or at least sort of um, let that passing game flourish. And he posted an enormous number. I believe it's the biggest number besides Oscar before 1980, plus 1.4, just a little under Oscar, 1.37 technically. And he finished his career. Five of his last six years were over one. That's with Golden State and Houston. So these are all the great passers before the three-point era. The best passing big man season belonged to Wilt Chamberlain in 1967, not 68. The model thinks he's slightly better in 1967. Again, it includes team performance, uh, teammate performance, uh, and in this case, you're looking at shots created, uh, passer rating, all of these things relative to the league turnover percentage relative to the league, and those are sort of uh, distributed amongst scoring and playmaking based on how much scoring and playmaking the player actually did. Wilt, 1967, uh, the best playmaking big man season before the three-point era. The guy who's never talked about Tom Boerwinkle, he was right behind him at plus 1.25 in 1975, one of the great early passing bigs in league history. Okay. Now it's time to get serious. We're going to do a few honorable mentions, then we're going to get to the list, we're going to finish most of the list, and either before the end or at the very end, we're going to come back to a few guys who I want to discuss as well, who we won't get to in the honorable mentions. So, honorable mention number one, these are three guys who, for me, were on the cutoff debating whether they could get in at the end of this list. The first is, boy, I just, it's it's interesting just looking at the responses. I know so many of these names are going to be a surprise to some, although almost every name on this list was hit on Twitter yesterday. The first one is Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson, he provided a tremendous amount of value from his playmaking from 2001 to 2005. Oh! Oh! Before I start this, I should probably mention longevity. How in the world am I accounting for longevity here? Uh, Much like we did with scoring to try to sort of capture the um, spirit of the exercise without being overly rigid about longevity, I basically said, look, give me four, five, six solid years. We'll look at that. We'll look at a five-year peak, for instance, a four-year peak, something like that. Demonstrate that you can do it. Demonstrate that you've done it with some sustainability and then the longevity is a bonus. So I'm a little bit more interested in that peak, if you will, although it, you know, five year peak, six year peak. After a while, it gets weird to start using the word peak, but that's what it really is. What did you do in four, five, six years, your best stretch? And then longevity is a bonus. If you can do that over multiple best stretches, or you have numbers that are similar, uh, sustained over a long period of time, that's even better. That's a bonus. So, Alan Iverson, first honorable mention, he peaked from 2001 to 2005, although he missed the 2003 postseason, and in that time period, uh, he, he lacks a little longevity as a great playmaker because before that, if you remember, he started as a point guard, but he really shot a lot. It was sort of like the Dewan Wagner, Sebastian Telfair, Gunner archetype, and it was only until Larry Brown came in 1999 where he was moved to shooting guard off the ball that that ironically, I think, kind of helped him more as a playmaker because it was probably a better natural fit for him. And then in the early 2000s, he starts to really come into a groove uh, as a playmaker. He had two years above plus 1.5 in this model Five years right in the middle of his career, 2001 to 2005, above plus 0.1. He had a great 2005 postseason, peaking at plus 1.99. Monster 2005 postseason, just one series, but uh, box creation in that series was 15 shots per 100, and his passer rating was 7.6. All told, Iverson over this five-year period, he averaged plus 1.6 in this model. That's the number to remember, plus 1.6. Also around plus 1.6, just below it, another honorable mention, and that's James Harden. Harden, uh, he's in the middle of his peak right now. It's 2016 to 2019. Again, lacking some longevity here relative to these other players, but that's not a huge deal as he was already solid and he's ramping up. And again, we are in the middle, especially the last three years of seeing Harden as a peak playmaker. If he were to continue to go at the pace he's going at, I would say he would crack the top 10 quite comfortably. I, I'm not sure where he would end up, but his last couple seasons have been even better than the previous seasons. Before that, uh, his last three seasons all over plus 1.5 in this model. So again, a little bit of issue uh, with longevity, but... He peaked last year at plus 2.08 in 2018, which is a great number. Plus 2.1 here is a great number, Uh, but there is a drop-off from the regular season to the postseason. He's he's losing about half a point of value in this model from the regular season to the postseason, which is fairly significant. And to put it into more specific terms, he's going from a player who is at a record-setting level creating offense. His shot creation, his box creation estimates in the last few years have him at all-time levels in the regular season around 18 per 100. This year, I think he was 16 or 17, something like that. But we're talking about the highest marks ever. 16, 17, 18 shots created per 100 for your teammates. Now, you that's great, obviously. But when he goes to the postseason, that's where we see a large drop-off. So instead of those numbers being 16, 17, 18, now they're 12, 13 range. So, for instance, last year, 13 per 100 in the playoffs. This year, 12 shots created per 100 in the playoffs. The passer rating dips as well. And what you end up with is final playoff averages from the last few seasons of 12 shots per 100 created for his teammates and a passer rating in the playoffs of around seven. Again, these are obviously fantastic marks, but I think it's important with Harden to differentiate between what he can do in the regular season and what he can do in the playoffs. His is average, again, around plus 1.6 in the playoffs. Um, In case it's not clear, I'm also going to put a heavy emphasis on what you can actually do in the playoffs in terms of your playmaking, just like we did with scoring last year where I came back and did a part two. Here, meshing them together and noting the regular season, and then if there's any differences in the playoffs, calling them out. I think what's often misunderstood about Harden is that just because he goes from this all-time level regular season offensive player to a level below in the playoffs, that still makes him a great offensive player. He's still in many ways one of the better offensive players ever. As you'll see, these numbers, these playmaking numbers stack up very well. But I do think there are causal actual basketball reasons that aren't worth elaborating here on for too long, but when your game is, let's put it this way, when your game is predicated on tricking the opponent, whether that's foul drawing or he's so crafty with the rhythm of his dribble and the way he attacks, when you get to see that for four, five, six games, my hypothesis is that there is an adaption and this is just based on my neurological background, when you see that once in the regular season briefly, it's going to get you. But as you see it four, five, six times, you're going to start to adjust, and that's going to take away some of the edge he has. You still see the skill shining through in that he doesn't suddenly become a pedestrian player. He doesn't even suddenly become an all-star player. He, he still is fantastic. But losing some of that edge chips away at his scoring when you chip at the chip away at his scoring threat the defense as a whole has a better idea of how to react to you and downstream you see that in the playmaking Harden is a good passer he's a very good passer out of pick and roll his pocket passing is fantastic he has an incredible feel coming downhill for lobs Uh, when to throw him, when to use the floater, when to go all the way, how to use speed and change of pace. But that's really the bread and butter of his passing game. He's not transition, he's not fluid, he's not dynamic with movement. And so I think when you put all those things in a blender, to me, you get an honorable mention guy who still has great numbers and the stats are very close, but that's why he's not quite in the top 10. Okay, one more honorable mention before we get to the top 10, and that is Isaiah Thomas. Not the new Isaiah Thomas, the original Isaiah Thomas. Zeke from the bad boy Pistons. And is another opportunity to talk about something that's misunderstood with Isaiah. Isaiah did not peak when the Pistons won titles. He did not peak when the Pistons made three finals in a row. He peaked earlier in the 80s when he was younger. And that's either a stretch from 1984 to 1987, if you do it by playoff uh, value, the playmaking value in the playoffs, or it's from 1985 to 1988. And from that stretch, either one, pick one, he was plus 1.75 in this model. So now we're starting to see someone at their peak in the postseason get up closer to that plus two mark, which will obviously come to with the better players. His box creation numbers 9.2 per 100 and a passer rating of 8 over those five playoff years. So we're getting into better passing. One thing to remember about the way passer rating works is it starts to become logarithmic as you get to the edge of the scale. So the difference between 5 and 6 is essentially 1. It's it's pretty similar to the difference between 4 and 5 but to go from an eight to a nine takes a little bit more. And to go from a nine to a 10 takes a lot. And a lot of this just had to do with the way outlier passers worked. Otherwise you'd end up with a scale where, you know, let's say you made it a one to 13 scale. You'd have a bunch of guys who were eights and nines and maybe someone close to a 10, and then you'd have players out at like 13 or 14 by themselves or something. So Just keep that in mind as we go from Harden at a 7 to Isaiah Thomas at an 8. That's a decent jump in terms of what the model is saying about your passing ability. Isaiah did have 7 postseason stretches above plus 1 in this model, which is very good. But the thing I would say keeping him out of the top 10 was he could never really crank his passing to the level of some of the passing gods that we'll get to and he was a notch behind guys who could really pressure the defense with their scoring. Okay, at number 10, and I'm not sure I saw this name yesterday. This was a surprise to me when I reached out and asked everyone on Twitter for names. I can't even remember if this guy came up once. So this was a surprise to me. It'll probably be a surprise to most of you. Number 10, top playmakers all time, Kevin Johnson, KJ. The longevity to me was perhaps the most surprising thing. Many of us familiar with the Suns and KJ and 90s point guards know how good he was at his best, know that he regularly was a fixture on the All-NBA team, even ahead of players like John Stockton. And so you could pick for four-year playoff stretches, you could pick 1992 to 1995, you could pick 94 to 97, you could even go young and pick... 89 to 92. KJ had six separate playoff runs over plus 1.5 in this model. He struggled most famously in 1993, and I think that's the thing that... I don't remember how much of that was just circumstance. That was the year Barkley won MVP. KJ missed almost half the season, but he did come back in March. It wasn't like... I, I don't remember at any point health being a thing, but it was his black mark as a player, that playoff run. Everything else was fantastic in the surrounding seasons from a playmaking standpoint. He peaked in 1995 with a plus 2.1, which is pretty large in this model. To put it into perspective, just some raw numbers, box creation created about 15 shots per 100 for teammates in that playoff run on a 7.4 passer rating he could never get that passer rating up to the really elite level but man could he create shots like a madman and if you think about him running around getting around screens penetrating uh pull-up jumpers this strain defenses and his averages over this stretch let's take the 94 to 97 stretch Averaged in the postseason, about 10 shots created per 100, passer rating 7.3, and again, right around plus 1.6 for the playmaking value in the model. At number nine, man, uh, the, the most surprising name to me. And again, I'm not sure anyone said it. Darren Williams, the forgotten point guard, probably because of what happened to him later in his career and he certainly does have longevity issues here, but it was very difficult for me to deny. Remember, I make the criteria and then go through and and compile the list. It's not the other way around. So it was very difficult for me to deny that from 2007 to 2010, Darren Williams was just about plus two in playmaking value in this model in his postseason runs, and Utah was A regular fixture in the postseason. Uh, In 2010, he was plus 2.4. In 2008, he was plus 2.2. Raw numbers to put this into perspective in 2010, he was uh, 12 shots created per 100 on his box creation estimate. And man, a passer rating of 8.8 in that postseason. Now, he only had about five or six playoffs above plus 1.5. So, He's right on the verge of you know, almost being hurt by any longevity tiebreakers, but the totality of his numbers were pretty huge. At number eight, a, a guy who, again, maybe many of us forgot or overlooked. He is, in a sense, uh, the only big man, not that he was really a true big man, but he is the tallest player in the top ten and that is Larry Bird. Larry Bird, obviously known as a great passer, but I think sometimes he's left out of that conversation. And one of the things I've harped on with Bird before is when he was younger, he started playmaking. So you have a combination of off-the-ball movement, quick decision passing, forcing doubles, and punishing them when he's in the post, things of this nature. So from 1986 to 1990, Uh, Remember, he did miss the 89 season, but he really hit that level in in the mid-80s. 86 to 90, he's plus 1.9. His raw numbers in 1986, seven shots created per 100 with an 8.2 passer rating. We don't have layup passing data back then, but layup passing data, uh, I have played with it. If he were nailing a bunch of layup passes, the model would think of him as closer to a 9 passer than an eight and change passer. Just a little footnote for bird zealots out there. And he was also tricky to rank because of his postseason injuries, because in 85 and 87, and then even possibly in 88 with some shin splints, he has breakdowns in the playoffs. So he was a player where I was trying to look at his healthy playoff seasons to see if there's enough look at the sample of his regular seasons and then kind of curve the numbers a little bit in the playoffs where he was injured after a certain point like he breaks his hand in a bar fight in in one playoff run so there is a little drop off there I was a little bit unsure of how to uh, calculate that but you still end up with his playoffs even if you include the injured sample about plus 1.7 in the model, the passer rating just under eight. He creates about seven shots per 100 for his teammates. And I think this is another example of where the context of the team, the type of team, the spacing they had at the time, the averages in the league. I mean, he really stood out as one of the best shot creators and playmakers in the league relative to that period in time. So bird coming in eighth. Number seven, very few people mentioned. I think NBA couchside was the only guy who really knew what was coming here. He's one of the greatest shot creators in NBA history, Russell Westbrook. Now, if that's a a shock to you, consider his best value as a player is his his ability to put pressure on the rim, his ability to get downhill off the dribble with speed, with ferocity, and cause defenses to collapse, react, muck everything up. He's been doing this at a high level for longer than you think. 2013 to 2016, or 2014 to 2017, he's about plus 2.3, plus 2.4, he's got a plus 2.2. These are monster playoff runs after big regular seasons. So for instance in 2016, Box Creation created 14 shots per 100 with a passer rating of 8.9. Now, passer rating, I'm taking the precision here out to a decimal place. It's not that precise. It's very good. It's very good for the to me for the idea that it sort of watches the game for you. It's fantastic. But that doesn't mean it nails everyone. And it's not designed, you can't have this particular type of model be perfect to within one decimal. But, and I have talked about this, I did a video on him this year, Russell Westbrook's development as a passer over the course of this decade was phenomenal. And 2017, he does the solo show. Uh, He has the ball all the time, box creation, of around 16, passer rating of eight and a half in the playoffs, but doesn't really quite have monster longevity. He's been only in that, you know, crazy rim attack destruction range. I said longer than you think because it goes back to 2013, 2014, maybe 2012, but that's it. So we're talking five, six, seven years. And there are some inconsistencies. In 2018, he really struggled with his playmaking relative to the surrounding years. He was only plus 1.1. His passing dipped a lot in the playoffs against Utah. And he has only five regular seasons over plus 1.5 in this model because of some of these inconsistencies. So a very tough player to place, but certainly someone to me that belongs in the conversation. And I think at the end of it, uh, you have him at like plus 1.9, just under plus 2, with his best playoff runs for 2014 to 2017, Russell Westbrook, number seven. Number six, I mean, again, to me, it's just one surprising name after the other, which is what has made this so interesting and so fun. You know, you can lay out all of the philosophical and semantic ideas of what it means to be strong in playmaking and passing, but we're talking about elements that have a lot of intelligence baked into them and have improved models specifically, I mean, my own as well as others by using them. And now you're asking the model, hey, tell me about this passing and this shot creation and this turnovers and try to, you know, distribute it in a way that makes sense. And roughly, what's your idea of who's the big time playmakers? Number six, spits out Michael Jordan for me. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest playmakers ever, the gravity, the ability to break down defenses, drive and kick, drive and lay down, just the sheer volume of his presence. His playmaking peak was from 1990 to 1993 at just under plus 2, plus 1.9. In that stretch, basically the best ever until I think the 2000s, I'd have to double check, but in the three-point era, he set the bar um, at a certain point. No, maybe someone else passed him. I don't know. Just Dis- disregard what I just said. But he's basically right there at 11 shots created per 100 for his teammates, which used to be the gold standard until these modern guys recently. Passer rating in the playoffs over seven, seven point four over this stretch, and. I don't know if statistically that's just his entire game rounding out, his turnovers staying low, um, his decision-making, getting a little cleaner or crisper in the playoffs, but that's a that was a pattern of his. It was a pattern of his for his passer rating to go up in the postseason. He had a monster 1991 postseason of plus 2.5. That's crazy. That's one of the best postseasons ever, and he was basically just Carving up teams in the playoffs. If you picked your poison and it was scoring, he'd kill you with a pass. He box creation in that postseason was thirteen shots per one hundred. This is a total outlier in his career. Five point nine percent adjusted turnover rate. I think all these are just outliers. He just had a crazy run in nineteen ninety one. I don't think that's indicative of his overall playmaking and passing ability, which is why I wanted to do multiple years or else he'd be top five. But still, I mean, four seasons above plus 1.5 in the postseason, this stretch around 89-93, uh, worthy enough to me, again, uh, only viewing longevity really as a bonus, for Jordan to go sixth. In a similar vein, number five is LeBron James. Now I feel like we're really starting to get to the heavy hitters that people associate with you know, greatest playmakers ever. I think some of those guys before were surprises, mixtures of scoring and passing and pressuring the rim and Stockton and Westbrook and Bird's ability to pass and create and move and everything that happened there. But now we get to LeBron and the next couple guys that are left, LeBron, known as a big-time passer and playmaker, he peaked from 2015 to 2018 in the playoffs. Uh, Also had, by the way, two crazy runs. The first was in 2009. He was plus 2.5 in this model in his 2009 postseason. His 2009 postseason just statistically, statistically breaks basketball. I also think, as an aside, it's a really good example of how statistics in a certain setting don't, they're not apples to apples always. They don't just determine the value of a player. So Stan Van Gundy last year in a wonderful podcast with Zach Lowe talked about how Orlando specifically schemed in that series for LeBron to score, meaning the poison they picked was he was going to have to score, score, and score to beat them. Now, He still pops here with his playmaking numbers because he created a lot of shots. He warped defenses in other rounds in the first two rounds. But when you combine the whole thing, you have this 2009 playoffs where LeBron averages like 38 points a game or something and the playmaking and passing and assists are there. The whole thing is very efficient. Uh, To me, it's a combination of great play, hot shooting, and needing to understand how a scheme influences your numbers from one series to the next. Uh, In his period of peak 2015 to 2018, 2018 playoffs, he posted a plus 2.4 in playmaking. LeBron's second, second stint in Cleveland, he was just carving people up. And last year by passer rating, I believe, was his career best passing season. The angles and the reads that he now has with the game as spaced as it is Uh, to me, just make him at the peak of his passing powers. I'm very interested to see how that plays out in 2020 in the coming season, which will be his 35-year-old season. Uh, Wrapping up on LeBron here, his 2018 postseason, he posted a career-high 16 shots created per 100 for teammates, passer rating of 8. He has 8 playoff runs above, plus 1.5. And from 15 to 18, just to wrap, put a ribbon on the whole thing, average passer rating in the postseason, 7.5. That can be a little suppressed sometimes with scores. Uh, I I tend to think of him as a slightly better passer than that. And then shot creation over 12 per 100 in that five-year stretch. His model value, the the play value spit out is just under 2. 1.9. At number 4. And see, now we get to the, the mega guards. Number four is John Stockton. That, of course, is a name that came up frequently when I asked Twitter to think about the greatest playmakers ever. Stockton was better when he was younger, earlier in his career. He had got a late start. He didn't really blossom until 88 when he was already in the league for a few years. And his four-year peak, according to this model, was from 1989 to 1992 at plus 2.1, just about 2.1, a little bit under. Uh, didn't have long playoff runs back then, but he had a crazy nice playoff run in 1992 at plus just under plus 2 in 250 minutes. The thing about Stockton, he couldn't and I've written about this before in his all-time player profile on backpicks.com, he couldn't you know, he couldn't pressure defenses to the degree that some of these other studs could. So the guys in front and behind him were able to pressure defenses more, and that's more sustainable in the postseason against a scheme or a series. Utah, of course, uh, would run stuff that would befuddle unprepared teams in the regular season, but it was slightly easier to take away when you can game plan for it in the postseason. Uh, he did have thirteen. He did have thirteen playoff runs above plus one point five. That best peak stretch that I cited from 1989 to 1992, he averaged about 10 shots created for teammates per 100, passer rating of 8.7. He's in that second tier of all-time great passers to me, as reflected by that, and his average uh, in this model, again, plus 2.1, just under plus 2.1. Okay, how are we doing? We doing okay? How's our time? We're pushing time trying to get this thing done in under an hour. But I don't know, hopefully you're enjoying this. It's been a while since we did a podcast. Maybe maybe we can go an hour today. Uh, of course, I haven't spoken in two weeks, so we'll see how the pipes hold up. Um, number three. <laughs> number three, this was a controversial guy, some discussions that I saw people on Twitter having. He's controversial in general, and that's Chris Paul. And Chris Paul is... He has a four-year peak with the Clippers from 2014 to 2017. In that stretch, he averaged an estimated 14 shots created per 100 for his teammates. His passer rating was 8.3. The model clocks him in at about plus 2.2. Over those four years, he has multiple playoff runs, at least three, right around plus 2.5 or plus 2.6 in this model those are some of the best playoff runs ever and he has some longevity has seven playoff runs over plus 1.5 and when he was back in new orleans in his 2008 breakout season he had another playoff run at plus 2.5 so some good longevity for paul some monster peaks uh We can have further discussions. I think it's totally fair to have further discussions about sort of if he was too conservative as a player. I've talked about that. The numbers perhaps slightly overstate his value and his impact. I'm comfortable with that. But I'm not comfortable with the idea that he didn't perform in the playoffs, that he shrunk in certain situations, that his playmaking value changed, that he wasn't an elite floor general. Um, Again, if you want to say... He, just like a lot of these guys, if he dominated the ball to do what he needed to do, that's fine, but so did many others. And so this is a guy with great passing, all-time high-level shot creation ability, Uh, the turnovers are low, the offenses are really good. Number three for me, Chris Paul. Do I think of someone like Oscar Robertson as maybe being a slightly better version of this archetype? I do, but I am certainly hesitant, especially in this exercise, as, as I talked about at the top, to say Oscar was having comparable impact with his playmaking relative to the league back in the 60s. So I point that out to say when I started, uh, I had that sort of uh, mental comparison between the two, Oscar and Paul, thinking I, I typically value Oscar higher And as an overall player relative to era, I'm not saying that I'm changing that just from this exercise, but the spirit of this exercise, uh, carrying over the same idea of using a model that tries to estimate playmaking value specifically and isolate it, says that those guys back in yesteryear weren't having the same impact. Modern players are. Paul is a gold standard in this instance. Number two, and... I don't know. It wasn't trivial for me that he wasn't number one. Let's just say this, but number two is Steve Nash, and and you'll see why it wasn't trivial. Uh, you could say his four year playoff peak was from two thousand five to two thousand eight in Phoenix. You could say it was from two thousand seven to two thousand ten. I mean, in Dallas, he was doing very well. He may have made this list just from his play in Dallas. He was plus one point five. Lots of shots created, really high-level passing, and I think you can make an argument that Steve Nash is the second best passer ever. I'll save that personally for a later day, but I know you can certainly make that argument. So, high, high, high-level passing, massive shot creation numbers, and he owns the best playoff run ever, according to this model, and it's by a lo- like a large degree... In 2007, the model spits out a plus 2.9 value for his playmaking in the postseason. That's, uh, I think, the next best ever is like plus 2.6, right around plus 2.5, 2.6. So his 2007, if you're wondering what happened in those two rounds in 2007, which I view as Nash's peak season, absolute unbelievable tour de force. Box creation estimates of 17 per 100, 17 shots created per 100 for his teammates, and a passer rating of 9.5, meaning he was just diming, dishing, uh, just carve, absolutely carving up defenses with his playmaking. He has seven years in total in the playoffs over plus 1.5. Uh, and if you look at these, uh, the best stretch multiple seasons, 2007 to 2010, his average is there. The model has him about plus 2.3, second best five year or four year average ever in the playoffs. Passer rating of 8.7, about 14 shots created per 100 for Steve Nash. And that leaves number one. I imagine the cat is way out of the bag at this point. The one, the only Magic Johnson. From a volume and, and proficiency standpoint, clearly the greatest passer in NBA history. I think you can have a more nuanced discussion, but let's save a get, save that for another time. Uh, he has, you can pick one for your peak. Now, Magic, if you look at the years, he didn't really come along until really the middle of the 80s in terms of just this dominant style of quarterbacking and showtime. And then they slowed down when Kareem left. Right around 90 91, they slowed way down and it was half court dominance. They could play him out of the post and play inside out. Uh, If you put him in the post, he would back in smaller guards and be forced to double and react, and he would just destroy you. Doubling Magic Johnson is like literally the most painful thing in basketball history. Uh, He would just pick you apart. So that entire stretch at the end of his career, 86 to 91, was fantastic he had a bunch of plus 2.5 seasons according to the model many years in the low twos overall he had nine years over plus 1.5 in the playoffs he had a perfect passer rating in this model of 10 meaning he set the bar he would have been that crazy outlier I was talking about earlier with um excuse me in seven playoffs seven times he had a perfect passer rating according to that metric. Now, that means that um, his averages over these periods, just to put a bow on this, pass a rating of 9.9. Shots created about 11 per 100 for Magic. Like I said, it was a combination of in the post or in transition. He blended opportunistic passing with actually forcing the defense to react and creating shots. And the model views his final postseason average over that stretch as plus 2.4, the best of any player in NBA history. Now, a guy who is right below him as a playoff passer in that next group is Jason Kidd. I said I wanted to circle back and talk a little bit about two players. Well, Jason Kidd is one of them he was a fantastic passer, he he was good in transition, pressured the defense, but simply didn't have the scoring arsenal that many of these other players had to consistently break them down in the modern game and set up teammates. And as a result of that, he flirts with plus 1.5 just a couple times in the postseason, twice with Phoenix and once with New Jersey. But I, I want to put some raw values on this to Clarify why the model sees him that way, and it gets back to our old friend Rajon Rondo, the Rondo assist. So Kidd is a phenomenal high-level passer, historically good, league-leading kind of stuff, continues that in the playoffs, but his shot creation never really gets above seven per 100, six, seven per 100, and that's during his best years, his last few years in Phoenix, and especially his first two years in New Jersey and again this goes back to just the concept of is there opportunistic passing yes but is that balanced as well against you know volume playmaking where you draw opponents toward you or you warp the defense and get guys wide open shots it also is in the context of who his teammates were and how good those offenses were those offenses were never great offenses for this kind of reason kid was more of a Rondo style player, a guy who couldn't shoot, who wasn't a, a great weapon in the half court versus a Magic or Oscar Robertson or Chris Paul type of player. So that's the difference. He wouldn't be far off, by the way, as you, as you may have picked up on with a couple plus 1.5 seasons, but didn't get into that final group of 12 or 15 guys who I considered for this top 10. One guy who did just outside my honorable mentions, and I really just wanted to set him aside briefly to finish this conversation is Steph Curry because there's a fairly unique component to Steph Curry, which is his off ball value. Part of this model, the way the tracking is done and the way the model works, it does take into account your off ball value. Now, not just sp- spacing is a separate thing, just the concept of spacing. And knowing that you open up the floor more and you stretch the floor, for instance, you're standing above the key or above the brake, and you hold a shooter from coming in and helping on a penetrator because he's worried about leaving you one pass away. That's spacing. That's, that's locking people out and pressing people out away from the hoop. This model separates that. That's not part of playmaking. If you were... Well, we'll get to to that in a second if you were to include that. But I just want to be clear that even though that idea of spacing isn't part of the model, off-ball shot creation is part of the box creation estimate. It's baked in. And so with that in mind, Curry would indeed be a top 10 player on this list just based on the regular season alone. Now, I ran into a very similar thing that I did with Larry Bird. I think Bird's numbers were a little better, which is how he ended up eighth. I mean, I think I would have had Curry eighth based on just the regular season, but his numbers drop in the postseason. In the postseasons where he's injured, he doesn't have a lot of longevity at this level. You could go back to 2014 when it's probably his best passing season as an on-ball creator, but he doesn't have tremendous longevity, and I think all this is important to note because there's this idea that he warps defenses more than anyone ever, and I think that's true based on hours and hours of charting this stuff myself and watching. He does do that off the ball in a way that's never been done. He, he does stretch defenses in a unique manner, but that doesn't automatically mean he's the best shot creator ever or the most prolific shot creator ever. These events only happen a couple times a game. They don't happen 10 or 15 or 20 possessions a game. Now, again, that's different from spacing or holding a guy on a wing or other little, little meta value head games that are too subtle for these kinds of metrics to try to scoop up. So I'm not uh, removing that from the conversation in terms of his overall in- offensive impact. I'm not removing from the conversation about his overall offensive impact the thing that's probably singularly most important to me, which is his off-ball play and how scalable or portable that is when fitting with any other superstar ever. His style of play just plugs in. So all of that is separate. But just looking at shot creation based on passing and box creation and the way this model works... Uh, His regular season, again, would have him in the top 10, I think probably eighth. But there are the injuries in the playoffs, and then there's the fact that 2015, uh, his, his play dipped a little bit. And for perspective, we're talking about a guy who in the regular season, 15 shots created per 100. But in the playoffs, maybe 10 to 12. How much of that is injury? How much of that? I don't personally think he has a lot of play decline. I just have a hard time differentiating, you know, okay, how much longevity credit do I give him on a list like this? I don't know. But to put it in perspective, if I were to add the spacing component, of which he's obviously one of the the best at in league history, his creation and spacing using the exact same model approach would leave him in a pack at around number four all time for best seasons ever in terms of creating for teammates like this and spacing the court, adding that kind of value. His 2015-16 would be very close to where James Harden was in the 17-18 regular season, Larry Bird's 87-88 regular season, and really only behind the top three monsters on this list, uh, the great point guards, magic, Paul and Steve Nash. So this model says, and I tend to agree, or I should say the model doesn't say, and I tend to agree that Steph is the greatest table setter or guy who makes life easier for teammates ever. It doesn't say that, but it does say he's near the top, depending on how you slice it. And he does it in a way, obviously, that has unique scaling effects that the models don't pick up, um, and that's to say nothing of his crazy scoring value as a player. So I think he was an interesting case study and guy to end on. Um, I just didn't really know how to handle his longevity issues combined with how you know we want to interpret any kind of off-ball value, and so I kind of set him aside. He's he's an honorable mention, honorable mention. (laughs) He would be in that group. He would be in that group just outside the top 10. All right. That is over an hour of talking about the greatest playmakers in NBA history. I really hope you enjoyed it. I feel like I'm back in my living room talking into a mic by myself a year later, all over again. I have no idea if this tracked well or not, but I do want to thank all my Patreon supporters, Patreon subscribers, you can go over to patreon.com slash thinking I will share the model results with Patreon subscribers at the insider tier. They get access to an historical database. And I've been saying for a while, I'm going to add these numbers. I will add these numbers shortly after this podcast goes up. Also now have Patreon only articles on backpicks.com. And I'm sure all sorts of other fun little things that I can't remember right now. Okay. That's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I hope you guys are having a great day and I will talk to you in the next episode.